Good morning. Uh, my name is Michael Tilley. I'm an elder here at One Ancient Hope. And um, this will be the last week we have, uh, we have our interim pastor coming next week. So if you don't like the sermon this morning, you won't hear me again for a while. <laughs> so, so that's um, a blessing for, for you all. Um, this is uh, a period of transition for our church. Uh, we will have an interim pastor, uh, uh, which Fred prayed about, uh, Reverend Tinkin, and he will come and be our interim pastor for at least three months, um, and that'll be a blessing for our congregation. And, and, but we've, we're making do during this time, and that's why uh, we've had uh, people rotating through our pulpit, uh, including me, uh, this week. So why don't we begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word. We pray that it would enliven our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that it would guide and direct our action, and that we would come to see the glory of your gospel and of what you've done for us through your text this morning. Lord, if there are any things that I say that are not from you, I pray that you would let them fall away and that you would use what is of you to plant seeds so that it would grow and flourish. Lord, bless the preaching and teaching of your word this morning. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In middle school and for uh, much of my uh, childhood, um, I was a pretty skinny, sarcastic kid, and I got into a lot of trouble at various points during that period. I wasn't a great, the greatest kid. Um, I, I got into a lot of fights. Um, usually they started with me being sarcastic or rude to someone and someone getting upset, and then we would have fisticuffs. So I was pretty little, though, so that didn't go so well for me. <laughs> um, but I had this one friend, this one boy that I sought out to be my friend. He was big, he was strong, and he would put up with all of my sarcasm and my rudeness, and, and he, he, he put up with all my annoying habits. He didn't really need me to look out for him, but he looked out for me, and so that kept me from getting into a lot more trouble than I would have gotten into because of him. And I think that junior high is like that for a lot of us. And it's at, like that for a lot of us well after junior high, too, where we seek out friends who are popular or cool. We seek out people who can do something for us. And that's especially true if we don't feel like we can do something on our own, that we seek out someone who can provide for us. We often operate according to this logic. We seek out relationships with those in power, whether that power is found in popularity, physical strength, mental sharpness, or social cachet. And we eschew relationships with those who can't offer us anything. And even when we are in relationships with those who can't offer us anything, we often do so because we want to help them. We don't want an authentic relationship with these individuals. We just want to have a one-way relationship where we give to them and they receive. 
We don't want mutual care and love. We just want to provide. And this is my first main point that I want to talk about this morning. In God's economy, God has a special regard for the marginalized, the poor, and the oppressed. And that's at odds with the economy of the world that I just described, where people seek out relationships and people because of what they can do for you out of self-interest. So seeking out relationships because of what it can do for you, this way of being, this economy, is common in the world today. And it was common among the religions of the ancient Near East, including the religion of the Babylonians, who are discussed in the book of Ezekiel, which is our Old Testament lesson today. In Babylonian religious myths, there was a hierarchy of gods, with the higher gods forcing the lower gods to do their bidding. They made them do all the labor in creation. In one episode, they forced the lower gods to dig the riverbeds of the Tigris and the Euphrates, which were where the, the cradle of civilization, if you know your history. It took a great deal of time for the lower gods to do this, and they didn't like it. So what did the lower gods do? They mount a rebellion. They tried to form a coalition against the higher gods, and there was a war. Ultimately, the higher gods won the war. They killed one of the lower gods, and they decided, yeah, this probably isn't the best arrangement, so what we're going to do is we're going to make human beings. We're going to give the lower gods a reprieve, and we're going to force the human beings to do all the heavy labor and the toil and the hard work. This is our peace offering to get to prevent this divine war again, this war between the higher gods and lower gods. It's a way to get the lower gods on our side. And this hierarchy wasn't just reflected in the way that the Babylonians and the other ancient Near Eastern religions thought of the relationship between the divine and humanity, but it was common among humans too. You would have rulers and priests those classes of people would oppress other people. They would have them do the hard labor on their behalf. And that reflected the relationship of their gods to them. They were representatives of God, and the people were like, so the gods were related to the leaders, and the leaders were in, made in the image of God. They reflected the image of God, and the other lower classes of human beings were then subservient to the priest and the rulers in many ancient Near Eastern societies. What's interesting is that this economy is strikingly at odds with God's economy. God created human beings out of his goodness and his love, in his image, to be his representative on earth. Everyone, not just the rulers and the priests, are made in the image of God. God didn't need to create, but he did so out of love. And in God's economy, for us to be his representatives is to say that we are empowered to create just as God created. We're empowered to serve just as God serves. We're empowered by God to make a difference in creation for the good of the entire world, to fill it for the good of the world, and for the glory of God. And that's what scripture means when it talks about 
humans being made in the image of God. The image is not what sets us apart from animals, although it does. It's not about reason that a lot of people have said in the past. It's not particularly about the unique status that human beings have and their relationship uh, of having a capability for a relationship with God here, but rather it's the way that you are like God, that you reflect his image in the world, that you are creative, that you make a difference in the world, and that God empowers all people to have that image. Now, reason and our capacity to have a relationship with God play into that, but the primary meaning there is a functional meaning about how we function in the world. And it's this economy for why God has a special regard for the poor, for the oppressed, and the marginalized. All people are made in the image of God, and God calls his people to support, to love, to form authentic relationships with, and to create systems that help the marginalized so that they can create, so that they can make a difference in society, so that they can help the world for the good and support the glory of God too. So to reiterate my first point, in God's economy, God has a special regard for the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed, and that special regard is completely at odds with the economy of the world that was common in our world and was common in the ancient Near East. <clears throat> Excuse me. The contrast between God's economy and the economy of the world is vital for understanding our Old Testament lesson for Ezekiel this morning. And this brings me to my second main point. The Hebrew people, Israel's accusation of injustice and unfairness in Ezekiel 18 is based on their adopting and living that economy of the world. Now, it's helpful to have a little background about Ezekiel here, too. Ezekiel was a relatively young prophet who was carried off into exile when the Babylonians first attacked Jerusalem in 593 B.C. This book, the book of Ezekiel, is written, it says, or it, it describes a vision that Ezekiel had five years after he was taken into exile. And he was basically living in a refugee camp among a bunch of other Israelis, or not modern Israelis, but uh, people from Israel. And while in that camp, Ezekiel was given a grand vision of the glory of the Lord, he saw a shining human-like being who was sitting on a throne, and the throne was supported by these winged creatures, and they were carrying this shining being. It looked a lot like the description, the, the winged beings, a lot like the description on the top of the Ark of the Covenant that you saw find in Scripture. It's pretty clear, and Ezekiel says this directly, that this was the vision of the glory of the Lord. And the vision that Ezekiel sees is of God leaving Israel, the glory of the Lord leaving Israel. They would be punished for their sins, Ezekiel says, 
they would be punished for their idolatry. They had worshiped other gods and operated according to the logic and the economy of those other gods. The ancient Near Eastern religions that we were talking about. They trusted in their wealth, their power, their alliances with these other nations, more so than they trusted in God and his economy. And remember, like I said, this economy is completely at odds with God's economy. Them doing so resulted in them amassing great deals of wealth for the leaders and the rulers and using that to oppress the people, the poor, the marginalized. There was violence. There was injustice. They even began practicing child sacrifice during this time period, which makes sense if you're operating according to the logic of the world where people are only valuable insofar as they serve your interest. And you want to curry favor with the gods? We can sacrifice these weaklings over here from the poor classes, not my children, but others. And this logic created an us versus them dynamic where Israel and its leaders were out to get theirs rather than to be a blessing to those for whom God had a special regard. And it's in this context that Ezekiel 18 falls. And chapter 18 is a passage where Ezekiel acts like a lawyer on behalf of God. He defends God's punishment of Israel against the accusations of unfairness leveled against him by those exiled at punishment. So let's look at that text itself that Fred read for us. I'll add a little bit at a, one point as well. In verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, and it said, What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. This is a strange saying. Uh, when I read it initially, I was like, what does that mean? Uh, but if you think about it, it's really saying we all have a physiological reaction when we eat something sour. You have a lime or a lemon and you suck on it. Your face scrunches up, Ugh, you know, if, particularly if it's really sour. And so we do that when we eat something sour. What the proverb is saying is that I do that and my kids have the reaction. Okay? Why are they saying that proverb? What they're saying is that God is unjust. What they're saying is that God is taking the actions of their ancestors who ate the lemon, who did evil, and now they're suffering the consequences, i.e. the exile, the punishment that God had. He's inflicting the punishment of the father on the child. And they think that's unfair. So God, in verse 3, tells them to stop saying this proverb. But why did he tell them to stop? And the answer is interesting. In verses 4 through 9, you see the answer. Verse 4 tells us that those who sin, whether father or son, are to be punished for their sins. But what sins is God talking about here? <clears throat> what is he referring to? Well, they're precisely, as we see in verses 5 through 9, the sins associated with the economy of the Babylonian religious myths and society. 
Don't take advantage of women through unjust sexual relationships. Don't oppress people. Live up to the ideals of having the poor's debt relieved at times, like, Israel, like we find in Israel's law. Give food to the hungry, clothes to the poor. Don't use your wealth to amass greater wealth for yourself through usury and interest. In short, God tells Ezekiel that he is after true justice between human beings. And he says that in verse 8. He wants a people that operates according to his economy, who walks in his statutes, who keeps his rule, and who are righteous in his sight. And that is the person who will live in righteousness. So why were the people being punished? Because they were doing those same things. And this is summed up in verse 25 from our Old Testament lesson when God turns the question of fairness on the people. And he says, it is not your ways that are not unjust. Is it not your ways that are not unjust? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he, done, he has done, he shall die. And that's my second point. God is just and Israel was living for other gods and living according to the logic and economies of those other gods. And that is why they were being punished. And it is because of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, because they lived out their sin, because they were harming those they were supposed to care for, and it's for that reason that they are being punished. But yet God is faithful to them, and he proposes salvation at the end of our Old Testament lesson today, for those who repent and turn from their transgressions. He does this in verse 27 and in verses 30 through 31. But that requirement of repentance is really too much for the people to do on their own. They're not capable of the kind of repentance that God wants. And in fact, in verse 31, he says, what it will require is a new heart and a new spirit. Now, this is, we, we also read this in our liturgy this morning with another passage in Ezekiel where it says, God will provide that new heart. He'll replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. But this harkens back to Moses, who in Deuteronomy 36, after, he says that after Israel has a period of time where they're separated from God, that God will transform the hearts of his people. And he says, this is uh, Deuteronomy 36. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. And this is analogous to Jeremiah's reference to the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 33, where he says, for this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And this reference to a new heart and a new mind, a new spirit, they are references that point us to what Christ has done and his work. And this brings me to my third point, that Christ 
restores God's economy in two ways. The first way he does so, and this is a necessary part of restoring God's economy, is by paying the penalty for our sins, by suffering death and the punishment that we, that I deserve. And then the second way that he restores God's economy is by taking on a human nature and showing us the inherent dignity and worth of all humanity and giving us by his Holy Spirit the means to live out God's economy. <clears throat> as we saw earlier, those who sin and Ezekiel, those who operate according to the logic of the world's economy, that they deserve death. The Apostle Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death in Romans 6. The payment for sin, sins, what sin earns is death. But Christ, who is just and holy, who loved perfectly in accord with God's economy, was obedient to that economy and lived it out even to the point of death, even death on a cross, paid the wages of sin. He paid the wages on our behalf. But that's not the end of the story. This is the first step in restoring God's economy. The second way that Christ restores God's economy was by taking on a human nature and redeeming humanity. He restores a right relationship not only between believers and God, but also between human beings, between each of us. That's why the peace with God is also peace with other people in our liturgy. The Holy Spirit creates a new heart and a new spirit within us so that we can live and love out God's economy. Our Old Testament lesson does point us toward this, but it's also the primary theme of our New Testament lesson in Philippians 2. A couple of summers ago, um, I gave a sermon here at One Ancient Hope where, we talk, where I talked about Philippians 2. And it's, um, I'll probably be a little bit repetitive for that, but uh, you probably don't remember the sermon from two years ago. So that's probably okay. <laughs> in that sermon, I pushed back against one of the most common ways of reading this passage in Philippians 2, particularly among evangelicals. Up until recently, I'd bought into that reading that common reading. And what that reading does is it emphasizes who Jesus is, he is God, and what he gives up, and how gracious we should be for what he had given up. All that's true. None of that's wrong. I affirm all of those things. But that, I don't think, is what Philippians 2 is about. Jesus the passage says, had the same form, the same morphe, the Greek word uh, there, which means the same shape, you know, we morphed into something, we changed into something. There was a metamorphosis where there was a transformation. It says that Jesus had the same form. And so what I would do is emphasize that, you know, Jesus was God. I would see this passage as a way to defend that. I've become convinced that that's not the primary emphasis of the passage. And I missed a lot of the substance of how God restores, or Christ restores God's economy 
against the economy of the world in this passage. And he does so not by decreasing himself, by taking the divine and emptying himself of it, as the passage talks about, but rather he does it by elevating humanity. He hallows the human by taking on a human nature. The ethical import here, I think, is very important. And it's about restoring God's economy and the world, that we are to value others like Christ valued us. He valued us so much as human beings that he took on a human nature. He made human nature holy, made it possible for us to be holy. He empowered each person to be restored to a right relationship with God, to reflect his image in the world again so that we could be creative and loving and empower others for the good of the world and for the glory of God. He redeemed us and gives us a new heart so that we're able to follow his example, to love others as Christ loved us. We don't do this out of guilt or from a duty that we have, but rather we love because of how unique and special each human being is because they are representatives of God. And that, brethren, is what it means for us to bow our knees to Jesus and to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father in Philippians 2. That's what it means for us to be of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind with Christ. That's what it means for us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than yourself. Let each of us look not only to our own interest, but to the interest of others. Part of that too is loving yourself. <laughs> Treating yourself as someone who is made in the image of God who deserves love and has love and respect because of what Christ has done. That you can love yourself in that economy in the same way that you're to love other people. But yet the economy of the world is a constant temptation. And know that no matter how oftentimes we fail to live out that economy, whether we're doing that with ourselves or toward other people, know that Christ paid the penalty for that failure, for that sin. And that when God sees you, he sees not your failures or your failure to live up to this economy that he has, but he sees Christ in you. So my sermon title was, Is God Fair? And the answer is no. Christ took on the punishment that I deserved. He gave me what I did not deserve, a new heart and a new life with the means to live out this economy, which I didn't do. Let's pray.